On this episode of AvTalk, we spend as little amount of time as possible talking about Post Malone. We find out that some aircraft are equipped with a flux capacitator, and Chris Sloan, the managing editor of Airways Magazine, joins us to discuss what he's learned from interviewing leaders at Delta, United, and JetBlue this month. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. We're almost to 40, so we're going to have to put like 40 pink 747s in someone's front yard, right? I don't have a front yard, so it can't be mine. I have – my front yard is the size – well, there's a piece of grass in front of the building in which I live. So we'll have to get some really small 747s for your lawn then. Call up the the guys who do the the 1-400 models. The microscopic model shop. There you go. Like the – what is it? Z-gauge trains? I don't even know what it equates to in airplanes. But we'll we'll figure it out and get a bunch of them. But this is episode 39. So so we should get through this one before we set our sights on 40. It's true. It's a good idea. It's been – mercifully, it's been a quiet few weeks. Yeah. We have – how much to talk about? All right, good show. Yeah, good. All right, wrap it up. <laughs> We're done here. So it's it's been after the previous two weeks and, and our last episode, which was probably more than enough to last us through the end of the month. We come back and and not a whole lot has happened. We don't really have any updates on any of the things that we talked about in the previous episode yet. The investigation into the Q400 incident is ongoing. The flight data recorder and pieces of the cockpit voice recorder have been recovered. We still don't know whether that means it's readable or downloadable or not, but we're waiting to hear from the FBI on that. And we continue to wait on uh, some some other things. The one update we do have is that the aircraft, the Cathay Pacific 777 that conked into a pole has been repaired enough to fly back to Hong Kong. Wow. So that was relatively quick. Yeah, still nothing from uh, Mexico either. No, I saw there was a a brief update saying that the investigation is ongoing, which was – well, but I mean, you know, one of those – we still don't know exactly what happened, but we're working on it. Updates, much as the FBI issued their update previously. So we wait and, and we go from there. But the one thing that did happen last week was very. Uh, do we have to? I want to talk about it because of the outcome, which was entirely, Nothing? exactly, entirely expected. So for those who should be blissfully unaware that any of this occurred. Last week, there was a Gulfstream 4 that departed from Teterboro. On departure or shortly thereafter, the main left tires deflated, burst, got hit with something and shredded. We, we don't know exactly what happened, but that happened. And so, the aircraft flew around for about four and a half hours and ended up diverting to uh, Stewart Airport in New York, which a bit of trivia about Stewart Airport, according to IATA now, it is officially in New York. It is. It is. Not the state. Was, was the that ever- in, No, in, the city. Oh, in the city? No. It's one of those things where where IATA, the, the commercial body that deals with airports and airlines and things like that, lists a metropolitan 
city for each airport. And it's a marketing decision. Absolutely not. No. It's a marketing decision. And and we've we've talked about this before, but be, but you know, Newark, which is in a different state, as far as IAD is concerned, in New York. And just very recently, I think just this week or, or the, the week before that, Stewart Airport, which is not in New York City and not really even It's like sixty miles away. It's close to New York City, but not quite, is now in New York. So that's my Stewart Airport trivia for the day. But anyway, the flight landed safely, taxied under its own power, and got off the runway, and everybody got off the plane and said, yeah, good job. But you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people tracking this. I saw Flight Radar 24 on a screen on Fox News that was, I think, 12 feet high. And I they thought like I had a big screen on my desk. Yeah. But I, I, mean, I was, uh, that's quite the video wall. And so I, uh, I was impressed by our own size. But that was pretty cool. But other than that, the thing that I wanted to really talk about was that exactly what was expected to happen happened, which is nothing. And so it's one of those things where obviously we're following it because there's a huge spike in traffic so you know what's going on and then and then you want to find out if this is something that is worth following and and then you start getting requests about you know what's happening and so what i always try and do is put out as much factual information as we can but also tamp down any expectations of kind of uh, i don't want to say you know fireworks but something spectacular happening because in 99.99999% of these cases, literally nothing happens. And so I think the whole idea that, you know, something, this was a take it as you will with the, you know, social media hyperbole, but, you know, a, a catastrophe waiting to happen, what's going, you know, prayers for everybody and, and things like that. It was, you know, it's kind of a pain to to be on your way to London and then end up in, you know, at Stewart after four and a half hours. Yeah, it sucks, but this is something that happens from time to time. It's not unheard of. Planes, occasionally their tires burst for whatever reason, and pilots deal with it. If aircraft weren't designed to deal with a burst tire, <laughs> we would be having a bunch of different conversations about how that could possibly be. But this is an expected thing. It happens from time to time, and like you said, 99.999% of the time, nothing happens. Exactly. And sometimes the wheels even fall right off and nothing happens. Okay, but this shouldn't happen. No, but it did. And that's what we'll talk about next. A Capital Airlines flight from Beijing to Macau was operating earlier today, the 28th of August, and it attempted a landing in Macau and things didn't happen the way they're supposed to, and the front wheels came off the A320. Yeah, apparently the weather wasn't too great there, and they had a bit of a hard landing. Is that right? Yeah, I haven't checked the, the METAR, but the weather was reported as not so good, and, and a few sources mentioned possible wind shear. So Yeah, so they touched down probably a bit too hard, and the wheels, not even the, the tires, wheels. the wheels, they, they, came they, right off. They, they're gone. I don't know where they are. Maybe they found. I, I mean, I know they did they, find. They, them. Found, they have yeah, pictures they of them. the shredded tires, but the wheels are not supposed to come off. But there's a picture of this thing with the sides deployed, and it, the nose is just hanging on to the taxiway, or I guess the runway, on this like peg of the landing gear. It looks like it was parked in a bad neighborhood, and its wheels got jacked. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and I was impressed that. It didn't damage the the gear more. 
when they landed, they, they diverted Shenzhen and they landed just fine, stopped on the runway, pulled the chutes and got off via slides on, on the runway and they'll remove the aircraft. But I was very impressed by how well the the already damaged gear handled that landing. That just goes to show how strong and how well built these aircraft landing gear are because the amount of stress that's put on them is tremendous. And this thing landed and the amount of stress a gear was under without wheels must have been incredible, but it's just kind of there, fine. But it looks like from some of the pictures that the the gear that did detach was ingested by the left engine uh, yeah, and did yeah. quite substantial damage to that engine. So not only did they lose their nose, literally lose their nose gear, but they more than likely lost the that engine as well because it's it's torn to hell. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to to see that report and what exactly happened and and whether or not the impact occurred to the nose gear. You know, first or at the same time as the main gear to to cause that to to happen or anything like that. And I have been told by uh, several Airbus captains that there is uh, no checklist for nose gear ingested by engine. Okay, that that's yeah. good to know. Yeah, I, I maybe Airbus will be writing one up soon. There, I don't there's know. no there's no QRH page for no. for <laughs> the, the wheels came off. No, that's not a usual occurrence. So not even a busted tire, just no wheels. Well, that's good to know that maybe somebody will look into that. Though hopefully that never happens again. But anyway, shall we say goodbye to a few more older aircraft? Goodbye, good riddance. We've had this discussion before and I think of it as a a goodbye, not a good riddance. But I just think there's such a good plane to fly. And I know we've gotten some mail in the past about people who've said that I'm crazy and stupid for holding this opinion. But I do think that that the MD-80 is a a wonderful airplane and and Americans sent another eight of them all together to the desert last week. Another mini Super 80 send-off. And and once again, the biggest accomplishment of that was that they were able to get eight of their MD-80s all in the air at the same time without any of them having mechanical issues. Well, yeah, there's that. The MD-80 is just like the 767. When it works, it's It's a great great plane. Yeah, but some of these were 31, 32 years old. They're they ancient, and it's it was well past their time. And somewhere on Twitter, somebody calculated Americans' average fleet age before and after, and, and it went down by a few. Yeah. Because these, yeah. these aircraft are just so old. There were a few that were really up there, and then there were a couple that were on the much younger side, and they were only you know in their teens. <laughs> Only so, teams. you know that's it. There was one that came over from TWA too. Just that, one? Yeah. Well, in this batch of retirements, but there was, I think it was uh, 2001 was when it was delivered. Well, American um, is now down to 34 MD80 mm-hmm. total, 32 MD83s, two MD82s. They do not have any of the 88s, which is what Delta has many, many dozens of, or is it hundreds still? And yeah, and will for a very long time. Let's see. Delta's got 98 MD-88. Almost. Almost 100. Almost 100. Well, maybe they'll add two more just to keep it a nice round number. Well, if you roll the MD-90s and 717s in, that they're all kind of the MD-80 family. We can just call it a DC-9 and be done with it. There we go. Perfect. All right. Works for me. Shall we go to, let's see, 
anniversaries or a really bad job? Really bad job. Really bad job. I don't know where you're going with this, but go with it. Okay. So uh, you, you may have seen, you may have heard, but there was a crash of a small aircraft in the Boston area earlier in the week. And Boston 25 sent a reporter out there to talk to, you know, the pilot and the owner of the the skydiving organization to which the aircraft belonged. And she came away with some inter- interesting information. And so the pilot shared their thoughts on what they thought may have caused the crash. And I will let uh, Catherine from Boston 25 fill us in on that. So take a listen. And the Hazelden told us that he believes the issue was with a defective flux capacitator, though the NTSB wouldn't comment on any potential cause today. Go Skydive Boston didn't respond to a written request for comment. We're live in Hanson. I'm Catherine Burcham, Boston 25 News. That's not a real aircraft part. It isn't. It's a DeLorean part. I it's believe. a De- well. It, <laughs> I'm not sure it came standard on all DeLoreans. Only the good uh, ones. Only the good ones. So let's talk about a couple things. One, it's not a flux capacitator. Nope. It's a flux capacitor. Two, that's not a real thing. And three, it's from a movie. And how did she not know that that was fr- I also have many questions, but I have no answers for you. I, I don't have any answers. But Back to the Future is possibly a, one of the, the most well-known films – in the American canon, from the last, you know, I'm not talking about whether or not it's it's a great film, a, a, a bad film, anything. Just everybody know. I, I thought. I, I mean, I thought so too. Yet here we are having this conversation. And so, unfortunately for her, someone played a played a prank on her. And so, I want to bring up one thing, and that's well, I want to bring up two things. First of all, should she have checked with somebody? I mean, it, it, when you listen to the video, didn't she say that the pilot him Self or herself? It was either the pilot. I haven't seen the full segment, but it was either the pilot of the aircraft or it was the owner or or manager of the skydiving organization to which the aircraft She would have no reason to think that they're they're screwing with her, but that that is some epic trolling. I, I applaud them. And so the flip side of that is, was that an okay thing to do? Yes, absolutely. If you can't screw around with local news, what can you do? That I don't have an answer for. See? All right. That's fair enough. Yep. So, don't believe everything you see on local news, uh, especially if it's aviation related because they're probably getting it wrong. And this goes into a a larger pet issue of mine in in that there are people who know what they're talking about and there are people who local news stations especially can, can often reach out to. And are we doing a good enough job to let them know that we're there? I mean, they're in, in Chicago, we're, we're very lucky to have, and I know in some other places too, we've got some av geeks in the local new, you know, reporters who are also av geeks. And so their reporting is often much better than the local news would normally suggest. We have had some issues where the local reporting has been very bad, where uh, I think it was an ABC7 investigation where they, they had a gotcha moment when a flight attendant was taking a photo inside of an engine. Oh, yeah, uh, that happens from time to like, time. Okay. <laughs> cool. Was the engine running? I mean, was the, was the exposure on the selfie good? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, it was one of those things where like, I, we needed to fill 30 seconds and this is what we came up with. 
But in other cases, it's been very, very good. And I know in a lot of places, it's it's hit or miss. So hopefully, we can do a better job of of letting people know that there are resources out there. But also, I mean, it was also very funny. I mean, these <laughs> these are also the same people who who will write up a quick hit article and use a picture of a, a Delta jet from like 1972 that was clearly taken on like a 35 millimeter camera with some dust spots on it. So there's very little hope. I've gotten to the point where I don't find anything wrong with that, mostly because I like looking at the old photographs. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great to see those. But when you think, oh, wait, this is what actual people are seeing in the news, it's a little weird. Well, but there's that, yeah. This there was just that. an epic troll case. And they, come on, how do you not know what a flux, flux capacitor is? Come on. I, I do not That's know. her own fault. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh boy, oh boy. So hopefully, you know, something good comes out of this and and she at least watches back to the future. Well, she'll have made the uh the local affiliates blooper reel for the year. So There you go. Time to move on. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about an anniversary. We'll cover some of the uh newer stuff that has happened this week. And later on in the program, we will welcome Chris Sloan, who is the managing editor of Airways Magazine, who's been making the rounds interviewing various airline CEOs. And we're going to make him compile all of that for us and talk to him about uh, what he's learned over the past month or so. So we'll come back, we'll talk a little bit more, and then we'll have Chris join us. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. This week, we are marking the anniversary of the Azores Glider, which is the second Canadian summer glider anniversary that we mark. A couple episodes ago, we talked about the Gimli Glider, which was a fuel starvation incident. And then this week was the anniversary from uh, August 24th, 2001 of the Azores Glider, which is an air transat a330 that also suffered some fuel starvation because they had a fuel leak and then they transferred the fuel into the fuel leaking engine side <laughs> and ran out of fuel oops yes yeah shouldn't do that so but the yeah they landed and it's a lot of math a lot of calculations to be able to figure out can we get to where we need to go with the whole uh what do they call? It? I guess it's not really a glide slope, but is it a glide slope when you're calculating ratio, how far? Yeah, ratio. Yeah, there it is, glide ratio, and yeah, it's impressive. But it was a how long? How far was the distance from engines out to wheels down? Let's see. They were complete flame out. Let's see, seventy-five miles that uh, is from the airport. A long way. Deployed their ram air turbine, the Rat which is is basically a, a, a tiny electrical generator that deploys in emergencies and and that got them enough to get there. Yeah. So it's uh, was, uh, impressive but hopefully something that will never be repeated again. No, I, I think that a lot of lessons have been learned since then, I, I hope. And and we're done talking about fuel starvation incidents. But yeah, the, this one marked and like the Gimli glider, this aircraft was repaired, returned to service, and unlike the Gimli glider, this one is still in service. You can follow this one still operating for Air Transat. The registration is C G I T S. So there you go. 
Let's see, where is she today? Uh, Toronto to, oh, it had to be something I can't pronounce. I'm wherever S-U-F is. Go ahead. I mean, I've been trying. You got to take that step, Jason. La Misa, it's going to Italy. <laughs> Toronto to go. Italy. There, there it is. Let's talk about where it's been. Maybe that uh, one's easier. Where it's been, know. Athens, Amsterdam, Punta Cana, Paris. All pronounceable. Yeah. Port-au-Prince, all, all the places I can pronounce. And this is the only time it's gone to that one Italian city I can't pronounce. Well, of course. Of course it is. Why, why, why would it be any I can different? pronounce that. No, we're going to get email about how, how to pronounce Manchester. Manchester. <laughs> now That's we're it. definitely going to get email. Yep. All right. Fair enough. Let's take another quick break and we'll bring in Chris Sloan, who is the managing editor of Airways Magazine, who we're going to have him summarize his multiple conversations with some major airline CEOs over the past month and talk about kind of what he's learned getting to talk with them and some things that questions about his questions. So we'll get to that in just a moment. So stick with us. Welcome back. We are now joined by Chris Sloan, the managing editor of Airways Magazine and a Points Guy contributor. Chris is joining us because he's been on kind of a world tour talking to airline executives over the past year or so and recently uh, kind of did three interesting pieces all in a very short period of time, interviewing United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and JetBlue Airways, C-suite folk. So, we wanted to bring him in and talk to him about some of the thinking at the highest levels of these airlines. Chris, welcome to AvTalk. Thanks for joining Hi, Chris. us. Chris. Thank you. This is a, a thrill. I'm sorry I have a cold, so I hope I don't just get everybody in the listening audience infected. They get colds in Miami? Huh. Oh, yes. They get colds in Key West and, th- and other things that are even worse. <laughs> so you've recently visited the folks at United, Delta, and, and JetBlue. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Delta piece and the JetBlue piece that, that came out of those interviews is out, and your United piece will be out soon? Yeah, I think the United piece will be in the points guy uh, next week. So it'll be out just after we're talking, so we're, we're going to give you a little bit of a preview if you're listening to this on, on Friday, I guess. But why don't you go ahead and just kind of just give us a, a basic overview of what the interviews were about and and how they kind of – what you're kind of going after in, in this interview series. Well, what the interviews are really about is I'm still trying to get to my uh, – keep my executive platinum status, so I just want to do a bunch of mileage runs, frankly. Though, funny enough, I wasn't uh, interviewing American this time. That was back in March. So that didn't go over so well sometimes when you show up at a, an interview. But, you know, I mean, I guess the idea is it was a range of questions. I mean, it's all those questions where you're sitting there reading stories and you're like – there's questions you're like, I would love to know the answer to that. I mean, of course, there's a lot of topics that are – really touch points and, and frankly, flashpoints at individual airlines. You know, it's always a challenge for them to give you, I mean, everybody gets wants to give you candid answers, but there's also a fair amount of, they're very well media trained, of course. So it becomes somewhat, you know, so you, you know, if you're trying to kind of go in there and do an expose or break news, that's a challenge. But what was really good is that people, all the executives were open to very candid lines of questioning. So I'd go in there and I just have a, a lot of questions on a variety of a variety of issues. I guess for lack of a better word of it. So a lot of the news lately, especially with, has kind of focused, I feel like in the past couple episodes that Jason and I have done, we've been focusing on, you know, Delta's C-series 
incoming C-Series orders. Recently, we've talked about JetBlue's and things like that. So uh, we'll start with a, a comparison there. Can you, can you give us an idea of what each airline is thinking about for those particular? So you want to talk about overall fleet or more the 100 to 150 passenger? Well, I'm, I'm just looking, you know, introducing a new aircraft into the fleet and, and where each is kind of thinking about taking those aircraft. First off, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, Delta, I think it's no great secret that they view the 717 has really been a game changer for them, you know, in, especially in short haul markets. And, and, you know, but the reality is there aren't that many available. And, you know, everybody thought that that may be, be a bad idea, but they really point to that has had a real effect on the bottom line by introducing into certain markets. At the same time, they, they talk about, about the CRJ 900, you know, being, and as evidenced by recent orders, also being a real success for them. So when they talk about the, describe the, the C-Series missions, the mission seems to be very much about doing things that the 717 does, upgauge versions of what the CRJ900 does, and then also opening up long, thin routes, you know, particularly out of cities where there may, may be new expansion, like like a Boston's or the Salt Lakes and things of that nature, the secondary, a little more of the secondary hubs. But there's just simply the range allows them to do a lot of things. And they were also pretty clear that it could be, it may not always be just 100s. It could also be upgaged, which I thought was interesting. So they're treating it kind of like a, a narrow body version of the 787 for these long, thin routes to open new markets they probably wouldn't or couldn't have done before. I think that's part of it. And I think then part of it is also the fact that it also performs the similar missions that the 717 and the 900. So it, it hits a lot of buckets, like just like what you said. I will say the most interesting thing was the day I was doing the interview was the day before. It was the day before they were actually, it was going to be landed, it was going to come to Toulouse for the first time and be the 220 or the 230. What is it these days? I get confused. A220, 100 and 300, is that right? Yeah. That is correct. But they claim, I was always interested, my question always, which I was trying to get an answer about that was, I was like, do you, when you said you're going to take these aircraft at the price you agreed, if there would have been tariffs and you weren't aware of this you weren't going to get the aircraft because you probably would have banked at that point. It probably would have bankrupt Bombardier if now all of a sudden the 300% over of the, of the price is different than what they're taking them on. And he said, you know, so were you guys intentionally helping them? You know, were they forcing, did you see the strategy of kind of Airbus or Bombardier being forced into the hands of Airbus? And he said, you know, I wish I had that brilliance and genius to have used, to have known that whether they did or not is not the case is, you know, who knows, but they did say they became they were aware of it, that they were aware it was going on, but it was but they didn't say come out and say, Well, we knew all along that this was gonna happen, so that's why I could make the comment about we're gonna take those airplanes at the price we agreed on, if that makes any sense. Well, I think that's an, an interesting way to to phrase it, you know, given having said that knowing what you know now, you wishing you, you knew then. But what about but, you go ahead, but Jason. I will say, can I say one thing is that they did, I thought it was really interesting that he again, he's like, hey, man, Boeing's a great customer, a great partner. We want we'll work with them. But it's like we all knew what they were doing. They were interfering with our business and everybody knew what they were doing. And I think that they're still very blunt about that. But yet at the same token, it does not prevent them from saying like, yeah, we wouldn't mind being the launch customer of the NMA. Yeah, they're looking to get themselves in a nice spot. And, and speaking of Boeing, Delta has quite a number of wide-body aircraft that they're going to have to replace in the not-too-distant future here. They've got uh, the 756 of those 300 ERs, a bunch of 400 ERs, these older 777s. Any indication what they're thinking about long-term for those? 
Well, I, I would say the, I mean, clearly in the, the wide body world, I, you know, I, obviously Airbus is an incumbent with the Neo coming or, uh, you know, there and then the three and continuing the three fifties. I did ask if there was a possibility of an upgauge to the seven triple seven nine. And the response from Ed was like, you know, all that's a possibility as because they really they they view a big part of the growth in five years. They want that airline twenty percent growth international. So there's like the only thing we rule out is four engine aircraft, but particularly about the replacing the seven five seven sixes. I think that's that where they came the NMA. And what was interesting is both Ed Bastian and the United folks said the same thing about the NMA is that we want a United says or Delta says we want a a wide body essentially with narrow body economics. And we do not want Boeing to overbuild, which I think is code for coming up with something that's too costly, too expensive. So they I think there's a similar I, I believe that the NMA is uh, by hearing comments in the room and then in, in media, I think that seems to be a significant player. But then nobody's ruling out the 321s or thinking the, the 330 neos is that role either yeah their tone at delta has definitely changed since uh the switch out from richard anderson to ed bastion richard anderson was all up on on uh used triple sevens and used aircraft were so cheap why would we ever buy new and they never really did that for wide bodies at all so a big big change of uh attitude for i guess uh their future order book yeah, you're right about that. That seems to be what United's doing. And they actually had a pretty interesting explanation for what that was about, um, which I, for the, particularly the wide body 7.6s that came out of Hawaiian. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, United is taking delivery of, was it three, three or four ex-Hawaiian 7.6.7s coming off lease? Yeah. They're doing what Delta said they were going to do, but ended up not doing, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, their attitude is like, you know, what if there's an economic downturn, we're getting them so cheaply that, you know, by buying a lot of these used aircraft, we're a strong believer in our tech ops, like it sounds almost like they're channeling Richard Anderson. Um, they'll say, you know what, we can just park them. You know, we own them cheap capital. And if we have to slow our capacity, we, we park used airplanes. That's true. Well, that, there's our, our chance to buy a 767 cheap. Yeah, sure, sure. Get my credit cards out. Spread it over a couple cards, though. All of them. Make sure you get your, you know, your miles and your points and everything like that. That's right. So your Chase Millennium card. Uh, yes. What was the best thing you talked about with JetBlue? Because they've got a lot going on right now. Oh, dude. You know, for me, the most interesting was like I just kept pressing them on Europe, and they said, and Joanna finally, who's you know the CEO, the new CEO and president, finally said, "Look, okay, someday JetBlue will be in Europe." Right on the and, and when you press them on that, it's like it sounds like it's just a matter of when, um, not if. But of course, there's no final decision at this point. There's no certainly maybe that they weren't going to give me. But it was interesting hearing them how discuss how they were going to disrupt Europe. My attitude with, question was like, is this is this really a play about Boston? Because you know Delta is coming to Boston, you know taking them on. Um, is this a long haul play centered around Boston and? You know, they they did not say Boston or New York, but it's obvious it's it's it feels like those two. What they did in the middle of the meeting is Robin Hayes pulls out his phone. He's like, "You want to know how we're going to disrupt?" He's like, and he starts going on to I think Google Flight, and he's looking up um, what it costs for a seven day advanced business fare ticket. He's like, "This is ludicrous. This is seventy five hundred dollars. This one is obviously even less, and that's an airline that's being subsidized." It's like this is exactly what it was like before we bought Mint on the Transcon. Is that there was extortionate pricing. And we came and disrupted it and reinvented it. And we bought the prices down for everybody, even though they admitted that Mint is no longer, not always, the most inexpensive, quote, business class on the Transcon. So they said, if you want to see what we're going to do in Europe, where we think the opportunity is 
Look at what we did with Transcon, with how we improved the core product on the long haul, and also how we disrupted with Mint. So they said, look to that as a model. And the, clearly, the A321LR could be a potential part of that, but also the A32700, whatever it is this week, the 220 could have a Mint configuration as well. I'm um, allowing them to, and, and perhaps even a smaller gauge Mint, condi- like a 22100 that could be perhaps used for some maybe unusual different missions. You know, maybe it's, it's a, a more of a premium aircraft. So they adamantly said, we're not just disrupting on price because there's other airlines that are out doing that. We're disrupting on quality plus price and what kind of JetBlue represents. There's not a lot of hubris at JetBlue. They're very frank about where their problems and their issues lie. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And and I also felt that they really felt they, you know, they wanted Alaska, I mean, Virgin, and they felt that it probably would have been a better mix for their culture. and It would have been a great thing. But hey, if second prize is you don't get it, but you're your, cus- your competitor overpays, that's not a bad second prize. That's not a bad outcome. I, I feel like we've been talking about JetBlue launching transatlantic flights forever. I have written about it dating back to 2012, and it wasn't even a new topic back then. But the A220 is interesting because Bombardier actually did a demo flight flying nonstop from London City to JFK. I think it was in a um, all-premium configuration to match the little BA baby bus, and that's probably not something JetBlue would match, but it can do it. It can do it, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's that was the real point, by the way, that they made about – they kept coming out and saying, you know, E2 versus C-Series, what was the light deciding factor? I'm thinking to myself, well, all you've done is you've had operational problems with this aircraft. They're already – there was a number they threw out, like, um, I'm trying to find that number, but it was it was not flattering that its costs exceeded, basically, its profitability in some way. I, I need to get the metric, but they said Yeah, that- they, they say the Embraer E-190's cost per seat mile for the E-190 is way higher than it is for the A320. Yeah, I'm trying to find what they said, but I thought it was interesting. Exactly. And it was like the, but the point is, they said, well, it, was, it really was close, but it came down to the range. And they said that the range was, you know, that's what allows them to consider doing things like transatlantic or transcons. So it kind of sounds like, and the reality is it doesn't really sound like it really was ever that close to me because there's no way the E2 is going to be able to do those kind of missions. Right, right. But who am I? I mean, what do I know? I'm just an outsider. Before JetBlue does any of that, I'd like them to get their house in order as it is now because they're, as we talked about before, they're going through some difficulties. Their operation on time percentage-wise is an absolute mess right now. They're dead last for several months in a row. They've gone through some layoffs recently, uh, different groups of employees have unionized. So they've got issues. So transatlantic might not be a priority for them right now. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, they, what was I, what I, what I love about really sitting with all these executives is you'd think they'd walk or all be smug, but they're really not. And JetBlue's people were pretty, they were, they both executives are pretty, were very honest. They said, you know, look, we don't have a revenue problem we're not perceived as having a revenue problem. You know, the JetBlue's margins went from like 16 down to 8%. And that's the biggest fall of anybody. And their point was, we have a cost problem. And at the same time, now we've been unionized in our flight cabins. We have a new pilot. We've had, we have a new pilot's contract. We've had layoffs. I think they're really cognizant aware that they don't want to lose that cultural DNA that makes them special. And they, but that they do, ha- and then what? What happens two days after the interview? They raise bag fees, and Ben Valdenza, who is a from Spirit, is a cost cutting specialist, and a ULCC guy joined. So I think they were, and also I thought was real interesting is they we've got to look at our revenue streams from other areas, not just trips, but JetBlue Ventures. So I, I didn't feel in any sense that they're 
I think a lot of what you're saying, like they realize they have issues. Certainly, the, you're right. The D, I think they're at the bottom with like what sixty percent on D zero. Yeah, they're bad. So, but they again, they also remind us that you know their biggest hubs are in the New York and Boston congested aerospace. But I don't know. I feel that they they do realize that a lot of what you're. They certainly don't think their shizzle doesn't stink. Put it that way. They're not arrogant. <laughs> that's one way to Can put it. Can you still say shizzle? It's 2017. I know that's a stupid yeah, yeah, thing. It'll get past the sensors. Whether it gets past anybody else is a whole other story. I guess it's me with a button. Anyway, I want to get back to United for a moment because we've talked about you know some issues with, with Delta's fleet and, and their thinking and with JetBlue and, and where they're moving to in the future. But what we didn't really talk about, I mean, United has a lot of older aircraft and we've talked about Delta's kind of thinking as far as wide body aircraft and and the NMA coming out and being willing to be a launch customer for that, which doesn't really solve the the wider wide body issues. But we've also talked, you know, is the A330neo going to be a replacement for the 767, things like that. But I'm looking at the United fleet. And, you know, there are 777-200s that are close to 25 years old now. Don't they have the original 777? I mean, yes. Well, not the first. They do. They have the first commercial. Yeah, they one. have the they have the first uh, two hundred. No, I think that one's right, on the Hawaiian the, the, routes. The first, yeah, the the first commercial one. The Cathay just retired the first one off the line this year. That's still something's going to happen. Something good is going to happen to that aircraft. We just don't know what yet. But we're looking at you know twenty twenty four, twenty three, twenty two, all the way down to the youngest one is eight years old. But they have two that are eight years old, and then the next oldest ones are or next youngest ones are 11, and then it jumps to 16. And there's a lot in their, their older teens and early 20s. And that's just the seven, you know, the triple sevens. We're looking at 27-year-old seven six sevens. I mean, this is not a young fleet. This kind of, you know, this wide body fleet here at United. And I'm wondering if you had any kind of discussion with them about what their thinking is for their replacements. I mean, Airbus was trying to sell the A330neo as a 767-777-200 replacement recently to United. And so did they mention that at all, what their thinking might be? Yeah. I mean, Greg Hart responded exactly what you said is we have a lot of old aircraft that need to be, eventually will need to be replaced in the wide body area. And, you know, and obviously the international network is extremely important. United's probably got the strongest international network of certainly, I mean, the U.S. carriers. They made the point that, you know, bringing a new fleet type in can drive upwards of 75 to $100 million a year in operating expenses. So he says, you know, as they evaluate, says that fleet has to be that much better than whatever it replace from a cost perspective. So, I, you know, I did ask him the same thing. I said, you know, okay, you now a majority of your 777-3s have been delivered. The, the twos are getting on the age. The 350-900s are more the size and replacement of the A350-900s, where the 350-1000 is more the size of the 777-300. And, you know, would they consider whatever that Boeing equivalent is, a, let's say a Dash 9X, even though it's larger, you know, and that's where they're they're saying, I think they, my money is that they would, I got the sense that they would conceivably upgauge on an existing platform they have like the A350-900 back to some being 1000s because of this notion of, you know, fleet complexity. That was my kind of kind of take on so it. So I, I want to go back to something that, that you said because I want to make sure I got the numbers right because that, that was a very interesting thing to me. You said that he said that in introducing a new fleet type into the airline drives operational expenses up 75 to $100 million a year. Correct. Yeah. When you start looking at pilot training, maintenance, fleet complexity, that's that's what that was the number they threw out. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, I assume the the 
maintaining a line to do the engine work is, is a massive expense on its own. For sure. Then you do you pull a delta and you make that engineering work and, and as well as JetBlue part of your uh, that maintenance part of your acquisition contract, which is pretty smart. Make it a revenue stream. But I definitely got the sense that they realize they've got that they're going to have to you know make moves and and a lot of this used aircraft is in a sense an interim step and easily kind of put to side if you know there's an economic downturn, which inevitably th- there will be in the next five years. Cycle can't continue. Who was the most interesting? to talk to of the big wigs that you did get a chance to. I figure they, they all have wildly different personalities, different points of view on anything, but I kind of feel like Ed Bastian would be the most interesting to talk to. Well, I mean, the thing about Ed Bastian was, is that I have to say, first off, he, he wears pretty cool shoes and socks. He's got this kind of almost celebrity status in the airline. Like people can't resist taking selfies of him. You know, people at Delta, you know, really, I think, have a lot of respect and worship for their leaders. And you're sitting there in his office and you're sitting, he's sitting there at the desk of CE Woman, the founder of Delta. And that desk is there. It's like the White House, the desk in the White House. It kind of, you know, I think he, but yet what I got from him probably more than anybody else is he loves this. He loves this job. He's like, man, I, I never got to be on an airplane until I was 25 years old. And he thinks this is considers this a fun, noble profession. And, you know, I was talking to his assistant outside. And I mean, the amount of traveling that guy does and the demands on his time, it took me, I think, six to nine months to get the interview. You do not get when you see his face, maybe it's because Delta is such a winner. You do not get any sense of weariness. He loves it and is living the, in, the, in that moment. And by the way, that guy never loses eye contact with you. It's a conversation and the smoothest conversationalist. But they each have their, you know, the JetBlue people I thought were just wonderful because they were also so candid and honest and human about where they were really succeeding. And they're very proud of a lot of things they've done, but also where they felt there needs to be work. And then the United people, I have to say, I was, the difference between them that was unique is, you know, United's been beaten down for so long that you expected to walk the difference of energy of walking the United headquarters from two years ago versus now is vastly different like these people <laughs> pre-jeff post-jeff days yeah and the dr dow days and by the way they don't hide behind that they talk about that as like that was like their moment of sand where change real some real change began and so i didn't walk into united thinking oh there's a bunch of arrogant and people who are also depressed they truly were like more so i think they were pretty thrilled that the narratives kind of changed so, i mean they were all interesting in their different ways but it hey man it's ed bastion who doesn't want to sit with ed bastion <laughs> you know Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and kind of get to secondhand sit in on some of these interviews. And we hope to have you back next time you're making the rounds. Perhaps we'll we'll send you far afield and, and see who else we can have you talk to. But thanks for making the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. That was an enlightening conversation, if only because I now have, I think, a better understanding of where the airline industry might be headed over the next six months to a year, I hope. Yeah, or I I don't know. I I take anything said about JetBlue's plans to fly to Europe with a grain of salt because I feel like I've been covering that since forever. So, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, but they are clearly not rushing into anything. Well, I mean, that's probably a good thing. Is it? uh, Well, you don't want to, I mean, I I feel like that's not a thing you want to rush into. 
But also, anytime I feel like they study a thing, by the time they're done studying it, the environment's changed so much that they just have to if start over study again. Study it again. That, that's, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. What about studying space? Sure. I've been there numerous times. All right. I, I love space. Yeah, it's great. So, one last thing to close out the show is that the Virgin Galactic N744VG is now operating in Southern California on test flights. They've been pretty tight-lipped about what it's up to, but it's been up in the air and keeping busy over the past uh, week or so. So, that's something to keep an eye on. And and hopefully, they'll have some more announcements when they closer to utilizing what it's for its purpose, which is a, a launch vehicle for their rocket. So, that'll be interesting once it happens. Kind of like the formerly Orbital ATK, now part of Northrop Grumman L-1011. Something. It's the last flying L-1011 and it's used to launch Pegasus rockets, which is just, I mean, a great use for like the last flying airplane of its kind. Right. I actually um, was in Long Beach, California, and that happened to see a Virgin 747 way out on the ramp somewhere and said, what the hell is a Virgin 747 doing here? And I only then, about a year ago, did I realize, oh, that's Virgin Orbit's orbital rocket hurling aircraft. And oddly, it, it lives at Long Beach Airport, or it did. I don't know if it still does because that's where- well, It's uh, based out of Victorville now, but I, yeah. I don't know where it you know lives. Yeah, at the time it was just parked at at Long Beach, which is just it's I guess it's a split commercial and also military, and used to be where McDonnell Douglas made their aircraft. But yeah, I see it was last at Long Beach, California, July twelfth, uh, and it's been hanging around Victorville ever since then. But it was just very weird to see a seven four seven at experimental titles and tiny little airport like Long Beach. Yeah, up at Victorville now, keeping busy and, and keeping company with the General Electric 747. So that's the their their new. Well, they're they're both there, but the the new 747 400 that I think has the Leap engine attached to it right now. Something that doesn't so look right. They, yeah, they they took off the the GE 9X, which was utterly ridiculous looking. Uh, this giant engine strapped to the 747, but it, it's keeping company up there. So we'll uh, we'll we'll see see them both flying soon. If you're interested in the the GE Aviation 747, it's N747GF. The old one was N747GE, and that was retired uh, about a year ago. And that was the at the time the oldest flying 747-100. So now I think the I'm not sure if there are any 100 still flying, but if there are, it's probably in Iran. Yep. So there it's, you uh, go. Poor Virgin, what's it say? Cosmic Girl. The If you're looking at it on the site, just be aware that the ADSB on this thing is way off because it last landed in Long Beach, but the ADSB track has it looking like it landed in Compton and it probably didn't land in Compton. See also an American Airlines 767. Yeah. Uh, with the old IRU transponder, base so transponder. According to the site, it landed at, what is this, Compton Woodley Airport. I, Probably I don't has think a, so. a runway, what is it, you know, like eight feet 2000, long. Yeah, 2,000 foot runway. Probably so, no. not reality. So, the real quickly, the, the reason that happens is because the flight tests, they go in, in circles or uh, oval pattern. And the more turns you make, the more you fly in circles, the more holding you do, which is roughly a holding pattern when they're doing these tests, the transponder position error increases. 
And so the site, you know, interprets the position reporting from the transponder and and makes a best guess for which airport it landed at. Sometimes the machine brain guesses wrong. In and this case, hey, it I definitely learned that did. there's an airport in Compton. See, I'm all about education and entertainment. Two runways, 3,300 feet each. Well, that's not going to – I mean, you could probably land a 747. Yeah. Probably take one off Probably, too, but it's empty. I don't know. Anyway, so that's why that happens and that's why if you're ever looking at, let's see, you know, older aircraft like early model 777s, 767s, especially American Air 767s for some reason. 757s too. 757s, yeah. And that's – you get the the older type, the, the IRU transponders, IRU-based transponder reporting, position reporting and that it becomes more – the position error – becomes greater over time, especially with turning and, and circling and holding and things like that. So that's why it looked like it landed in Compton. Cool. Or they wanted to be closer to their destiny. I don't know. Either way, this has been episode 39 of AvTalk. Our next episode will be episode 40. And that's so we true. need to uh we need to get on those tiny 747s. I'll uh see what I can rummage up. Excellent. You're in charge of the tiny 747s. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. <laughs>